Good morning. Take out your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. This morning we'll be looking at verses 18 through 26. You can find the passage on page 981 in the Pew Bible. 981, Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. Notice that we're going to be picking up at the end of verse 18. The verse numbers are not inspired. Uh, those numbers are added a lot later, and some of them aren't very helpful. This is one of those numbers. So, end of verse 18. As we looked last week, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi to update them regarding the difficult circumstances they've heard that he is facing. Paul is in prison. Paul is awaiting trial. Paul is facing the very real possibility of his death. The Philippians love Paul, so they are concerned about Paul, and so Paul writes this letter in part to encourage them. But as we saw last time, while Paul is supposed to be writing about himself, he almost cannot help it. He ends up writing primarily about the gospel. So last week we looked at the advance of the gospel. We saw that the gospel of God advances only through the people of God. And then we saw how suffering advances the gospel, how the example of others advances the gospel, and then how ultimately joy advances the gospel. So we ended last week on a note of joy, and today we begin again with a note of joy, which seems strange based upon the text. This is a joy that is utterly foreign to the world. This is a joy which sadly is utterly foreign to many of us, because it's a joy that is so real, so deep, so lasting, that Paul can rejoice even in the face of his potential death. But Paul, we're going to see, can even prefer and desire that potential death. That's strange. What do we do with that? How can he do that? We have an idiom that we use these days when we want to emphasize that something isn't that big of a deal. We say, ah, you know, it's not a matter of life and death. Well, our passage this morning very literally is a matter of life and death. If Socrates was correct that the unexamined life is not worth living, then we have before us a text of great worth because in it, the Apostle Paul, in one of the most important lines that he ever wrote, one of the most important lines ever written in the history of mankind, Paul tells us exactly what life is, and then also exactly what death is. Our text is the matter of life and death. Paul, as he faces his potential death, as he shares with the concerned Philippians his thoughts on life and that potential death, gives us one of the best and the most succinct descriptions of the Christian life. And here it is in four words. To live is Christ. To live is Christ. It will take me over 6,000 words to not even begin to do justice to those four words. So we've started with a question for the last couple of weeks. We've asked a couple of weeks ago, what do you pray for? Because the content of your prayers reveals the content of your heart. Your prayer life um, reveals uh, your, your, your life. The, the focus of your prayers reveals the focus of your life. Then last week we asked, what do you rejoice in? Because where your joy is, there your heart will be 
Also, let's start with another question today. Let's get really serious really quickly. Are you ready to die? Because that's what this passage is about. And honestly, think about it. Our culture has no idea what to do with death. So we do everything that we can to postpone it. And we do everything that we can to not think about it. Thus, social media. And thus, our entertainment-centered and obsessed society. We are distracting ourselves to death by doing everything that we can to distract ourselves from death. Well, my goal this morning is to do everything I can this, uh, to make you think about what you don't want to think about. Instead of distract you from death, I want to direct you to death. It's coming. Your life is one day shorter today than it was yesterday. So we need to face this. We need to be ready for this. And there is no text better for that than our text. To live is Christ. I want to take that as a four-word summary of the Christian life. Our church mission statement, we define ourselves with Paul's words in 1 Corinthians. We preach Christ crucified. Well, this is why we preach Christ crucified. Because to live is Christ, we therefore preach Christ crucified. So, I want to clear up some of your confusion on what it means to be a Christian. When I moved up here from the South, in part, I moved up here because I thought I was leaving cultural Christianity behind. I thought cultural Christianity was a thing only in the South. It's not. It's here. It's everywhere. We have a strong tendency to speak this way, but not to then live this way. We have a strong tendency to profess that which we may not actually possess. So I want to take this text and look at it in terms of what it means to be a Christian. Just basic foundational stuff. If you are a Christian, this will be true for you. If you are a Christian, then for you to live is Christ. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, there's more, but I've pulled four main things from the text. Paul commands us in 2 Corinthians 13 to examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Well, this is the perfect opportunity to do that. If you are in the faith, then for you to live is Christ. But what does that mean? Right, well, I want to know and look and answer that question and how you can know that for you to live is Christ in a bit of a different way. Uh, this morning. If you look down there in the outline, you'll see it's different than maybe we usually do. I want to seek to answer four questions that I think come from the text. Four questions that will help you understand what to live is Christ means and then whether or not that is true for you. We're going to look at two future tense questions and two present tense questions. Death for us at the moment is still future. Life now, obviously, is present. So, number one, first future, will your death be deliverance? It's the first thing Paul's going to address. Then number two, turning back to the present, here's the question, is your life presently centered on Christ? Not that you say that you believe some stuff about Jesus, but is your life as you actually live it of and from and for Jesus? Then number three, we're going to shift back to the present as Paul looks forward, asking the question, will your death be gain or loss? 
Paul says to die is gain. Let's be clear, that's insane. Unless all of this about Christ is true. So number three, will your life be gain or loss? And then number four, back to the present, we'll ask the question, is then your life centered on the people of Christ? That's what it's going to mean to live is Christ. Deliverance from, actually through death, a life that revolves around Christ, a death with his, which is actually gain, and a life then lived for the good of others for the church. So we're going to look at Paul's answers to these four questions, and I want you to then be looking honestly at your four answers to these questions. Can you say this morning with Paul that for you to live is Christ? Because that's what it means to be a Christian. And this, this verse, I can make a case that this verse holds the key to the whole letter. In fact, it probably wouldn't be going too far to say that this verse holds the key to everything. This is the Christian life, and this is a matter of life or death. So let's read the passage, and let's see what Paul says. Philippians chapter 1. Remember, I'm picking up there under the heading at the end of verse 18, and I'll read through verse 26. But this, in God's amazingly detailed sovereignty, is what he has to say to you this day. Paul writes, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. If you would bow with me and let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we are in great need of you, of your spirit at this time. I am in great need of you and your spirit at this time. Father, we come before a passage this morning of great weight and of great significance. Father, a passage that I feel completely insufficient to do justice to. Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe that our only hope is for you to take this word and to work and speak through it. Father, we ask that you would show us Christ. We ask that you would reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. Um, Father, I, I need you every hour, especially this hour, I need you. And so I pray um, that you would make your word clear. I pray that you would make your word powerful in our hearts. I pray that you would magnify Jesus Christ in the preaching of your word and give every single one of us a great desire and a great affection to know him, to love him, and to live for him. We ask and we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Right, so to understand what it means to live as Christ, to discern whether or not for me to live as Christ, we're answering these four questions. Our first is, do you know that you will be delivered? Can we start with joy again in this book that is frequently about joy? We're kind of taking our theme as not just joy, but it's gospel-generated joy. This whole letter revolves around Christ in chapter 2 and what he did, and it's Christ that then produces this joy that we're studying. So Paul has been presently rejoicing last week. Now he is future rejoicing. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. Why? Verse 19. For he knows that through their prayers and the help of the Spirit, this will turn out for his deliverance. Paul knows that he will be delivered. The question is, though, what does Paul mean by delivered? What does he mean by this deliverance? And this may be one of those spots where the King James gets the translation a little bit better. If you're looking at the King James, you'll read this. Paul says, I know that this will turn out for my salvation. And that's because the Greek word is soteria. And almost every other time that word is used in the New Testament, it means salvation. Acts 4, 12, and there is salvation in no other name, in no one else, for there's no other name given among heaven by which we must be saved. Right? Same word there, soteria. And Paul is clearly in Acts 4 talking about ultimate spiritual salvation as he almost always is when he uses this Greek word. So which is he talking about in our passage? Is he just simply mean that he knows that he's going to get out of prison? It seems that later on in the text he is confident that that will happen. In verse 25, he says that he's confident that he will remain with them to help them, right? That seems to imply that he believes that he's going to get out of prison. But he could mean something different. He could mean something more in verse 19, and I think that he does. I think the King James gets it right here. Because look at verse 20. Notice he's not talking about a get-out-of-jail-free card. He expects and hopes that he will not be ashamed and that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in his body no matter what, whether by life or by death, whether he gets out or whether he doesn't. And as we're going to see, Paul doesn't care whether he gets out or not. He might prefer not to get out. His concern isn't whether he lives or dies. He might concern. He might actually prefer to die. His concern is that Christ is honored no matter what happens to him. What does that mean? What does it mean to honor Christ? Well, literally, the word in the Greek means to be magnified. It means to be made large. Now, not like a microscope makes something large. A microscope takes something that is really, really small and then makes it look larger than it is. That's not what's happening here. This is more like how a telescope makes something large because a telescope takes something that is really, really large, unimaginably large, something so much bigger than you, but that is so far away from you, you can't even see it. A telescope makes that large thing large by bringing it close, right? The object already is insanely large. You just can't see it. So the telescope enables you to see it. The telescope magnifies by revealing what is already there, that which is already big. 
That's how we honor or magnify Christ. We, as we'll see in a moment and next week in great detail, we show Christ to be large through our lives, how we live, and through our deaths, how we die. When it becomes clear that we value Christ more than anything else, people see that, and Christ is honored in us and through us, and he is thus magnified and glorified and honored. And that's what Paul wants. He wants people to see how great Jesus is through his life or death. His concern is not getting out of prison, but honoring Christ. And he knows that Christ will be honored no matter what happens, because he knows that he ultimately will be delivered. And he's not worried about prison or death because he knows that he is in Christ. He knows that nothing can separate him from the love of God. So I believe that he is talking about his confidence in his salvation. And I think we know that further because Paul's actually quoting the Old Testament here. He's actually quoting Job chapter 13, verses 15 through 16. You probably know the story of Job. Job, too, is experiencing great suffering. Job has lost everything. And not only that, but Job's worthless friends have shown up. Uh, and they have tried to convince Job that all this must be happening to him because of some hidden sin in Job's life. They assume what most people still assume today, basically karma. Something bad is happening to you, therefore you must have done something bad to deserve that bad thing. Job knows better, and so Job pleads his case before God, and he affirms his innocence. He says, though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will turn out for my salvation. In the Greek translation of that, Paul just lifts that and uses that in Philippians chapter 1. And so Job, talking about arguing to God's face, talking about a meeting with God, meaning standing before the Lord, and Job knows that standing before the Lord will actually turn out for his salvation. He knows that because of his innocence in regards to his friend's accusations, that, but ultimately he knows that he will turn, this will turn out for his deliverance because of the nature and the grace of his God, and that he will then be vindicated before his God. And to stand before God and be vindicated is salvation. And that's what Paul is referencing. So that must be what Paul means here. He knows that he will ultimately be vindicated. He knows that he will not be ashamed. He knows that Christ will be honored by life or death, because he knows that deliverance ultimate, final salvation awaits him. And he knows that nothing can touch that. He's safe. He's secure. He's courageous. He's confident, even facing death. To live is Christ first means to know this deliverance. It is to know that God will ultimately save because he has already secured that salvation in Christ. And that then gives us wonderful confidence and assurance. This is why we can face difficult circumstances with joy, because we know that ultimate circumstances are not up in the air. We know that they're already finished. They're already guaranteed. We've seen this up in verse 6. We have confidence that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. 
To live is Christ is not just to know Christ. It is also to know that you know Christ. It is to have assurance, the assurance that John writes about in 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you know that you have eternal life? Because such knowledge is critical to the Christian life. Such knowledge frees us to live the Christian life in a fallen world amidst difficult circumstances, surrounded by people who hate God and hate the things of God. Do you know this confidence? Getting back to the question from the introduction that we most want to avoid, but this text will not let us avoid. Are you ready to die? Are you confident that your death will be your deliverance? Paul is. And so he can face prison. He can face Caesar. He can face his execution with joy because he knows ultimately he will be delivered no matter what happens to him immediately or circumstantially. And it's that knowledge that makes it possible for him to say what he says next. Look at verse 21. Here it is. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Second question. Is your life centered on Christ? Because the Christian life is a Christ-centered life. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Now again, just, just stop for a moment, for a second. Many of you have probably heard this hundreds of times. Don't do what we tend to do with these familiar Christians saying, oh, I've heard that. Oh, yeah, I, I know that one. Uh, don't let the familiarity of this blind you to the insanity of this. Because again, this... Like I said, this is nuts. We've got to make some effort to really try and understand the gravity of what Paul is saying here because this changes everything. This is one of the most dramatic statements ever written. This is one of the most radical statements ever written. But by that, what I really mean is radical in the original sense of the word and not radical how we use the word today. We use the word radical today to mean extreme. We use it to mean something extremely different uh, from the norm or from the usual. But originally, the word radical meant something else entirely. It's from the Latin word, which just means root. And it means going back to the root, going back to the original, going back to that which is essential. Our current use of the word developed in politics where a radical became someone who, who so wanted to change the very root or essence of society and government that they were then called a radical. And then the word kind of shifted to mean someone extreme because they're trying to change these core fundamental things. So we could mean both uses of the word when I say that the phrase to live is Christ, to die is gain is radical. It is radical in the sense of extreme because it's different from the usual today. This is different than what we generally see and expect. But what I want you to see is that this is radical in the nature, in the sense that this is simply what it means to be a Christian. Like this is the essence, the core, the root 
of the Christian life. This seems extreme to us, but biblically, this is the norm. You cannot be a Christian if this is not true for you. To live is Christ and to die is gain. This isn't just like super Paul, super Christian something. This is foundational to the Christian life. The Christian faith is living in, with, and for Christ because Christ has first lived and died for you. Listen, if that's true, that means there are a lot of people out there and maybe a lot of people in here who could claim the name of Christian but who could not clearly claim that for them to live is Christ. So I want to make the case that the, this definition of the Christian life is this utter Christ centrality. There can be no Christian life without Christ centrality. To live is Christ. And there are other verses that confirm this for us. Later on in chapter 3, verse 8, Paul will say that he counts everything else as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. In Colossians 3, 4, he'll write about Christ, who is your life. In Galatians 2, 29, which we read earlier, he says, it is no longer I who live. I don't even live anymore. It's Christ who lives in me. You see, Paul is so caught up and consumed with Christ that he can honestly and literally say that Christ is life. Again, this is kind of hard for me to put into words. I don't think I can do it justice, but we understand the basic idea, right? There's a sportswear brand out there, kind of a smaller outfit, but it's called Ball is Life. And we understand what they mean by that. Right, to many, like Jordan, uh, Jordan has just struggled to find any sort of meaning or value. Michael Jordan, I have to explain who that is now. That's sad. Uh, Michael Jordan, he struggled to find any sort of meaning to his life after the game of basketball. Because the game for some of these greats is so all-consuming. By saying that ball is life, they means that basketball defines them. It drives them. It gets them up in the morning. They build their schedules and their lives around it. And they live for the game of basketball. But we all have something like that. Something is life for you. Your life is centered on something. It has to be. So what is it? What's the main thing of your life? What is your top and first priority? What are you most passionate about? What do you most think about? What do you most talk about? What do you spend most of your time and your money on? What defines you? Have you ever really kind of sat down and sat back and tried to honestly answer those questions? What am I doing and why? What's the point? What's all this for? What am I for? Have you taken serious stock of your life? If you do, you can see based upon what you think and feel and love and do, you can see then pretty clearly what is your center. And Paul says that for him, that center is Christ. To live is Christ. And it's actually even more emphatic in the Greek. There is no is in the Greek. There is no verb. It just says Christ, life. Christ, our death, gain. Christ, Everything. That's all he says. Just puts the two words beside each other. Tell me honestly, is that true for you? Can you honestly say, as we're going to sing at the end, hallelujah, 
All I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. That's the verse. That's what we confess and sing in that song. But still, let's not be vague. What does Paul really mean by this phrase? Well, one of the ways we could go about it is you could think about it in terms of beginning, middle, and end. Beginning, middle, and end. In Colossians 1.16, we learn that it is by Christ that all things are created. We are created by Christ. Our lives are created by Christ. To live as Christ first then means to recognize and live in light of the fact that Jesus is your creator and that he is the source, the fountain of your life. He made you and that makes you his. And in the same verse, we learn that all things were created through him and for him. So Christ is not only the source of your life, the beginning, but he's also the power and the meaning and the purpose of your life. And this is what we read in Galatians 2.29. Our connection, our identification with Christ is so close, so intimate, that Paul can say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So he's the middle. He's the present of our life as well. And then finally, Christ is the end of your life. He's the purpose. He's the goal of your life. All things you included were created for him. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says that he died, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And that, by definition, is what it means to live is Christ. It says he died for them. If you claim to be that then, he died for you. It is so that then you would live no longer for yourself, but for him. So who are you living for? Is it for yourself or is it for him? That's one of the ways that you can tell if for you to live is Christ. Beginning, middle, and end. Christ. Or we can flesh out what to live as Christ means just with the rest of Philippians. Right? You just jot these down. We'll just run through them. 1-1, one, one, to live as Christ means to be saints. It means to be set apart. It means to be holy in Christ. He shapes. He changes us. He makes us like him. 4.13, it means that we get our strength from Christ. 2.5, it means that we have the mind of Christ. 3.8, it means to count everything else as loss compared to Christ. 3.9, it means to be clothed in Christ's righteousness. 4.4, 4, it means to find our joy in Christ. 1.29, it means to suffer with Christ. 2.11, it means to confess that Christ is Lord, not just with your lips, but with your life. 4.7, it means to know the peace of God in Christ. 4.23, it means to know and rest in the grace of Christ. And on and on and on we could go. It just simply means that for you, Christ is everything. To live is Christ. Is that true for you? One of the main things that concerns me as a pastor is for you to know this. I just want things to be clear. Right? I want you to know one way or the other. Because listen, I live so much of my young life under a cloud of confusion, convinced that I was a Christian because I was a pastor's son and because I went to church and because, yeah, you know, I believe some stuff in this Jesus guy. But, but here we're seeing that that's not what it means to be a Christian. In so many circles today, it means nothing more than calling yourself 
a Christian. It means nothing more than loosely agreeing to some things about some person named Jesus. No. Again, there can be a profession of Christ without there being a possession of Christ. James 2 is clear that there is such a thing as false faith, and that is any sort of faith that claims Christ without actually loving Christ and delighting in Christ and living in and for Christ. He either is your life or he is not. There's not a third option. There's no middle ground. You cannot have some of Christ. It's either all I have is Christ, we sang, or nothing. And listen, there's nothing more miserable, because I've been there, there's nothing more miserable than saying that for you to live is Christ, but then not actually living as if for you to live is Christ. It will rip you apart at some point. It will not work. You cannot do it. That inconsistency and hypocrisy will make you miserable. To live is Christ is not just to believe some things about Christ. That's what I thought it was for so long, but I didn't know him, and my life so clearly demonstrated that. To live is Christ is to love Christ. It's to see him for who he really is. God himself come to us in the flesh. It's to see what Jonathan Edwards described I love this, as an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. Only Edwards could write like that. An admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. What in the world does that mean? It means that you see in Christ as you examine and as you read the Gospels. If you're not sure, read the Gospels. Read John. Read John and look at Christ. Edwards means that as you see and understand this Christ by the grace of God, you see this amazing coming together, this conjunction, this combination of qualities that shouldn't go together. You see absolute and utter transcendence and power and authority clothed in transcendent flesh, in humility, in gentleness, and in kindness. It's seeing the greatest being in existence, the source of all other being, life itself, come to us. Come to me, despicable me. In all of my sin, having rejected him, flagrantly and repeatedly, having hated him, having turned my back on him, having spit in the face of my maker and Lord, and yet, while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. While I, Not once I cleaned my act up, not once I figured things out, while I was still his enemy, Christ died for me. That's the gospel. That's the power of salvation. It's seeing who he is and all his holiness and his beauty, but then seeing that in light of seeing myself for who I am and all of my wickedness and repulsiveness, and then seeing what he did to rescue me. Oh, that's it. That's what this is all about. That's why Christ is so amazing. That's why Paul can actually say to live is Christ. That's why he's willing to give up everything for Christ because of who Christ is. God has already come and given up everything for Paul and for me. And once 
by the grace of God, your eyes are open to that reality, it begins to change everything. Guys, listen, this is what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't mean to intellectually assent to some stuff about Jesus. It doesn't mean to pray a prayer or to walk an aisle or to raise your hand or to do whatever it is that you think and point to and look like that says you are saved. It means to see and savor Christ. It means to learn and to love and then live Christ because of who he is, because he is so beautiful, because he is worth it, and because he has demonstrated all of these amazing things to us and for us on the cross. A Christian is not someone who believes some stuff about some guy who lived a long time ago that I think was born on Christmas and that I think something happened at Easter. No, a Christian is one who has been caught up and captured by the goodness of that Christ so that increasingly nothing else matters because Christ is now the sun, the, the center, the defining reality of your life around which everything else orbits. Is that true for you? And again, listen, not perfectly, right? How, how short I fall of, of this. Let's be clear, I always preach better than I live. But I want to be true. I want this to be true. And, and by the grace of God, increasingly, though often painfully, slowly, I think it is becoming true. I'm finally starting to see and understand and really believe why Christ is so good, and I want my life to be about that, and I want my kids to, I'm not going to send them to school. I'm not going to let them leave my house because the only thing I'm concerned about is them knowing Christ, because nothing else matters. If all this is true, nothing else matters. If this is a matter of life and death, and if Christ is the dividing line, the only determining factor between life and death, then nothing else matters. I don't care if you're aging. I don't care if relationships are falling apart. I don't care if work's going badly. I don't care what else is going on. Christ is what matters. Paul is facing his death and he can rejoice because he knows Christ. That's what I want for you. Your progress and your joy are altogether contingent on whether or not Christ is your singular primary passion. Is he? John Newton, Amazing Grace, he wrote this as a prayer for, for his friends. This is what he writes. This is beautiful. Read Newton. Says, this includes all that I can wish for my dear friends. This is everything. This is it. That you may grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus. That's it. That's the one thing I want for my kids. I don't, I don't care if they go to, I want them to go to Carolina, but I don't really care if they go to the best school. I don't really care if they get the best education. I don't, again, all the things that we care about and live for, it, they don't matter if we don't have this. Christ. The only thing he wishes for his friends, is that they may grow in grace and the knowledge of Jesus. And he goes on, to know him is the shortest description of true grace. To know him better is the surest mark of growth in grace. To know him perfectly is eternal life. And that's just John 17.3. Right? To know God is life. Do you believe that? Like actually, is life knowing God we know God through Christ. We know Christ through his word. Is that life? But Paul says it is. To live is Christ. Third question. 
Don't worry. We know that I won't even really get to the fourth question. Third question. Number three. Will your death be gain or loss? In the second half of 21. If to live is Christ, then to die is gain. What? Paul calls death gain. Yeah, let's be clear. Death is literally the worst thing. It's it. That's the worst thing. Death is the cloud that hangs over everything else. Death is the coming end to everything else. This is a matter of life and death. You have to face this at some point. You can ignore it for a while, but you obviously can't forever. One ancient Greek philosopher, Epictetus, cool name, reduced all of philosophy down to one single issue, the fear of death. So that's what philosophy is about. It's about addressing and dealing with the fear of death. Philosophy is ultimately about learning how to live life in light of death. One of the best uh, short books on the history of philosophy written is by a Frenchman named Luc Ferry. It's called A Brief History of Thought, A Philosophical Guide to Living. It's excellent as an overview of a history of philosophy uh, and how it relates to life. It's not a Christian book, but Ferry does what almost no other guys, non-Christians do, is that he actually gives Christianity a pretty fair shake. He, he kind of gets it and understands it. Um, and so it's a really solid book. But this is what he writes at the beginning. Again, this is coming from a non-Christian. What do we truly desire above all else? To be understood, to be loved, not to be alone, not to be separated from our loved ones. In short, not to die and not to have them die on us. But daily life will sooner or later disappoint every single one of those desires. You see, the very things that you live for, the very things that define your life, are the very things that give your life meaning and value, the very things that you live for are the very things that death takes away. And he goes on to unpack uh, Edgar Allan Poe's famous poem, The Raven. You probably at least know the refrain running through it, right? Never more, never more, never more. Ferry goes on to write, he says, Poe is suggesting that death means everything that is unrepeatable. Death is in the midst of life that which will not return, that which belongs irreversibly to time past, that which we have no hope of ever recovering. Death is the problem of philosophy. Death is the problem of life. And death is the problem of your life. Death is loss. Yet... Paul says, death is gain. Look at the end of 22. This is crazy. Paul can't even decide which one he would choose. Life or death? I don't know. I'm not sure. Verse 23. I love verse 23 in the King James. He says, for I am in a strait betwixt two. That's really good. Paul says he's hard-pressed between the two. His desire, actually, to depart and to be with Christ. For that is far yeah, we understand what he means. Depart means death. Paul says that death would not just be better, but far better than life. What? Why? Well, he tells us. He says, because to depart, to die, is to be with Christ. And it's that that is far better. If, as Newton says, to know Christ is grace, and if, as Jesus says, to know him is eternal life, then death becomes wonderful news. Because according to Paul, and according to Jesus' words to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. 
In Christ, death becomes nothing more than the means by which we are united with Christ. Death is gain because death now gets Christians to Christ, the one who their lives have been centered on. And so we're actually up to Paul. He says, and I think he's being honest. I don't think he's lying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says he would choose death. Now, okay, this is not some suicidal death wish. He knows it's not up to him. He knows it's not his choice. And this is, he's not choosing death as a rejection of life, but choosing death as the recognition that Christ is life. In choosing death, he is choosing real life, ultimate life. So now, paradoxically, in light of Christ, death actually becomes the means by which we enter true life. The enemy, the biggest, darkest cloud hanging over everything, waiting to be the end of everything, in Christ actually becomes the beginning of everything. Why? How? Again, because of the very reason that we are gathered here together on this day. The Lord's Day. We've been talking about this. Easter is not the day that we remember the resurrection. Sunday is the day that we remember the resurrection. Every one of them, every week, we begin by remembering and resting in the resurrection. And it is only because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave that Paul can utter the insane words that death, the great loss, is now the great Gain. Their great enemy is now the great friend because of what he writes elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15, 54. One of the most powerful passages in Scripture. I love it. Paul taunts, Paul mocks death. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Christ guarantees the destruction of death. Death's victory is, it's no more. Its victory has been swallowed up in Christ's victory. By Jesus Christ, God himself become man, perfect man, without sin, then submitting himself to death, and in so doing, he defeated death itself. It could not hold him. It had no power over him. And since he was our substitute, dying our death in our place, that means that death cannot hold us. It has no power over us because we are in Christ. And that's how death can be gained. A defeated death is gained because now death simply becomes our servant, ushering us into the place we most want to go, to the person that we most want to to be with. To die is gain. And so Paul's desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. You don't really believe this. Let's be clear. We really struggle to believe this. What if we actually believed that the day of our death was actually the best day of our life? Because in Christ, it is. And let me be clear, this is only true for those who are in Christ. This is only true for those for whom it is true that for them to live is Christ. If that is not true for you, if the first part is not true for you, if you are not in Christ, if you do not know him and love him, then for you, death is loss. 
eternal, unimaginable loss. If you ultimately and finally reject Christ, if he is not your life, then he will ultimately and finally reject you. He will say to some of you uh, those most chilling words in Scripture that plagued my young, unsaved life, Matthew 7, 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If for you to live as anything but Christ, death will be anything but gain. Death will be loss. Death will be hell. Will your death be gain or loss? There is no more important question than that. And Christ is the only answer to that question. Finally, number four, we have no time for it. Is your life centered on the people of Christ? And that's what it means to live as Christ. This is, that's one of the main, if not the main ways a life lived for Christ works itself out. It works itself out and shows itself in a life lived for others. Think about it. If death gets pulled to Christ, if it is such eternal gain, then why in the world would he not choose death? My answer would be because, oh, I'd like to experience more life. Right? I'd like to travel. I'd like to see my kids grow up. I'd like to have some grandkids. I'd like to write a book. It's all the things that I would like to do in, in life. What's Paul's answer? Verse 22. If I live, that means fruitful labor. What's that mean? Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. To live is Christ equals to live for others. Paul will remain only if it's for others, only if it's for their Good, so that he can serve them, so that he can assist them in their progress and joy in the faith. This is one of the main tests. This is one of the tests of First John. How do you know that you know? Do you love the people of God? Is your life centered on the people of God? Paul is willing to hang around and postpone that most great of things if it means the benefit of others. That's what it means to live is Christ. We live for Christ in large part by living for the people of Christ, by serving one another and seeking the good of one another. Hey, listen, maybe you're miserable in part because you think your life is for you. It's not. And so if that's how you're living, you're doing it wrong. It's for Christ. And for Christ, it's for others. Listen, it's all right. We're not going to spend a ton of time here this morning because it's coming. We're going to spend weeks on this in chapter two. I'm preaching Philippians so that I can preach chapter two. But the point right now is that the Christ-centered life is the church-centered life. You cannot claim to know and love Christ if you do not know and love his church. It's just not how it works. When we love someone, we learn to love what they Love. Well, Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. That means that if you love Christ, you love the church and you live for and with the church to serve and to seek the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what it means to live is Christ. Honestly, 
Is that true for you? Will your death be deliverance? Is your life centered on Christ? Will your death be great gain instead of great loss? Is your life centered on the people of Christ? Those are some of the questions that can help you tell whether or not this is true for you. Again, Paul doesn't just say to live is Christ. He says for me to live is Christ. He owns it. Is that true for that's how you can be ready to die. Only by knowing and loving Jesus, the one who came to die that spiritual death so that we would never have to. The one who defeated death so that physical death would then be nothing more than the means through which we get to be with Christ. And that is far better than everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we are, I am greatly humbled by your word and challenged by your word. Father, I want to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. I want to be like Paul as he is becoming more like Christ. Father, I want to be able to say with him that for me to live is Christ. And Father, that is the one thing that I want to be true for my family, and that is the one thing that I want to be true for my church family, my brothers and sisters who are in here. And Father, there are many of us right now uh, feeling quite guilty and recognizing um, how short we fall of this. Show us Christ. Father, don't just uh, show us Christ. Don't just show us your kindness um, so that we can abuse it. Father, show us your kindness so that it would lead us to repentance. Father, I pray that we would not be hearers only of the word. Father, make us doers of your word. Father, whatever it is that we need to do, whatever it is that we need to cut off, whatever it is that needs to happen so that we can confess um, with Paul that to live is Christ. Father, do that in us, and for us, and through us. Father, I want the life of Woodside Community Church to be defined by and centered on Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.